Welcome to Cowan Insights, a space that brings leading thinkers together to share insights and ideas shaping the world around us. Join us as we converse with the top minds who are influencing our global sectors. This is a visionary podcast series about visionary ideas and people. My name is Oliver Chen. I'm Cowan's new platform, retail and luxury analyst. In this episode of our retail and luxury visionary podcast series, we're sitting down with Brooke Armstrong to discuss non-fungible tokens and an NFT 101 podcast series, along with implications for retail as consumers reach for the virtual world. I use a MetaMask wallet and I have a few NFTs myself from Gucci, Superplastic, CryptoJanky, and Sotheby's. Who is Brooke Armstrong? Brooke serves as CEO and co-founder of BlockSky, a company that works with major suppliers and buyers of travel inventory, including major airlines and hotels, to tokenize tickets and bookings on chain in order to fulfill expense and settlement services against these digital assets. Brooke Armstrong has been investing in crypto since 2016 and NFTs since 2019, and he actively invests in NFTs across a range of blockchains and categories, fine arts, pictures, utility, gaming, virtual, and infrastructure. In addition to active investing, he also advises on crypto and NFT assets. Brooke, it's really exciting to have you today. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on. I'm excited to be here. To set the frame for our discussion on NFTs, can you describe what's an NFT in a few sentences for us? Sure. The, the literal concept of an NFT is that a blockchain contains cryptographic testimony to the ownership of a digital asset. So this is just a decentralized blockchain like we're all becoming familiar with, testifying that there is a digital asset and that you own it. And when you own it, you have the right to sell it, uh, borrow against it, and um, use that as, uh, as collateral and, and property. That's in its, its most literal sense. Brooke, what are your most frequently asked questions you get about NFTs? And what would you say is least well understood about NFTs and crypto? The most frequently asked questions are generally questions around how do the economics work? Is this a Ponzi or a pyramid? I don't, I don't quite understand why I'm seeing a press release or media um, about these high value images. So just some questions around why does this have value? Why is the market pricing these things? Past that are the questions of how do I get started and um, what's the ent best entry point? And then the inevitable, how, much, how many do you own and, and what are they all worth? In terms of the question of uh, which are the least understood pieces of nfts and crypto you know i think there are, are a number of things it's it's a, it is a relatively complex market it takes some time to to get inside of it um, but for nfts i would say that the impact on various markets from retail to gaming and travel that a peer-to-peer -peer marketplace for non-fungible digital assets can have I, I don't think that's priced in i think that there are we live in a world where we consume and touch a lot of natively digital assets, but because those assets are not in a peer-to-peer -peer marketplace, there isn't proper price discovery and, and proper risk assessment about what those assets are. On the crypto side, I'd say there are even 
more less understood things on NFTs, but to pick one that I'm fond of, um, I think the impact of private issued stable coins on global commerce and capital markets, um, and this is distinct from central bank digital currencies or CBDCs, I think that's uh, vastly underrated at the moment. So how do you get started in NFTs? What are your recommendations for people who are newer to this field and, and market? The first thing to do is, is look around and um, find ones that you find compelling. Find them compelling because of the community, because of the game that they could be in, the, the, the look, the feel. But in general, once you've identified a, a series or an artist that, that you are interested in, the first thing to do is identify if there's liquidity in that series. So if, if, you, if you're looking and you see that the last sale was a week before that and, and two weeks before that, it means it's a low liquidity market. And if you want to sell your NFT, you're, there's, there's not a lot of opportunity to, to sell. In general, I look for um, series that have around 10 sales per 24 hours. If you're looking and you see that, um, that means that there's a pretty good opportunity to sell if you want to sell. And then the last very important thing is always buy two. Um, because if you become very, very attached to it, uh, it's a real heartache to sell it. And we've seen this with both the Bored Apes and Pimp Punks. People have, have bought one. They really identify it. They use it as their avatar on Twitter, et cetera. Goes up in value and they want to sell it. But then once they sell it, they don't have, have, have one they can use. So always, always buy two. Brooke, NFTs are, are largely part of the Ethereum blockchain. Can you explain that? What does that even mean, the sentence I just said? The sentence that you just said sort of has two implications. One is that NFTs are part of, of crypto or Web3. And the, the second one is that they're part of Ethereum. So I think to, you know, to take those questions in two parts, the first question is that NFTs, by definition, are peer-to-peer -peer tradable assets that can go anywhere. This is distinct, for example, from an asset that I buy in Roblox. I can't buy a Gucci bag in Roblox and then, and then take it off the Roblox platform and sell it anywhere else. Um, these NFTs are, by de definition, uh, you know, in a way, interoperable. I can, I can do whatever I, I want with them. In the Ethereum context, what this means is that most NFTs are issued on Ethereum because there's been a network effect around NFT issuance on Ethereum going back to the very first NFTs that were issued on Ethereum and ever issued anywhere um, in early 2017. And so there has been a network effect of issuers, creators, and artists um, wanting to be on chain where other folks are. So we're starting to see other folks uh, issue change on Solana, Tezos, et cetera, and we're seeing those markets grow. But there's a, a network effect in this community right now around Ethereum. Brooke, you brought up peer-to-peer. -peer. Uh, that ties nicely into Web3. A lot of people listening to this won't even know what Web3, uh, how do you explain that? And how does that interplay with peer-to-peer? -peer? So the, the way that I think about Web2 and Web3 is really in, in context. And I think Web3, by definition, adding the number three is in distinction to, to Web2. So I think to start with Web2, in Web2, 
you don't own your assets. You don't own your identity. So I can spend hours of my life creating content for my profile on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, et cetera. But then if I want to take that content out and own it and put it somewhere else, I, I, I can't because all of that data I've actually handed over to those companies. And in Web3, it introduces this idea that I actually own that data. By owning the token, I can actually own the platform. And now when I have those assets, I can trade them peer to peer. And I think to go back to the Roblox example, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a, strong, um, a strong anecdote. So if I buy a Gucci bag in Roblox, I can only sell it inside of the Roblox platform. And in, in that sense, I'm kind of working for Roblox because if I meet up with friends and they're buying Gucci bags in another game, that means that there is a Gucci bag virtual good buyer that I can't sell to because mine's, mine's in Roblox. What I'd like to do is say, oh, I, you're in, you've got Gucci bags in Minecraft or I can, I can sell it to you. So in web two, I'm, I'm kind of working for Roblox at that point. In web three, if I have a fully interoperable uh, Gucci bag NFT, then it's just me, it's peer to peer. I can, I, can, I can sell that anywhere. And one of the things that really excites folks in web three and NFTs is from this perspective, when you look back at Web 2, you realize how much of Web 2 is really driven by advertising models. Google as an advertising company, Amazon increasingly as an advertising company with their search results, Facebook, obviously, and how many businesses have been built on that advertising model. NFTs, by definition, are doing many of the same things. They're attracting eyeballs, generating attention. People are acting as natural marketers identifying with PFPs and, and NFTs and talking about those NFTs. So a lot of the same media and social dynamics are going on in Web3, but in an entirely different economic model. There's no advertising revenue in, in, in NFTs. It's all around folks owning these assets and transacting among them. It's an entirely different act, economic model to address those basic uh, media functions. Brooke, so how will NFTs play a role in retail? Some of the low hanging fruit um, is where product market fit has already been demonstrated for virtual goods. Um, we've seen folks buy and sell in-game assets for um, almost two decades now, I think. And those are big growing markets of, of virtual goods. Uh, and brands have moved into that space with, with great success, right? Enjoying the scale of digital goods versus physical goods. I think an, you know, a natural progression there um, is for those assets to become uh, NFTs. And I think that's a good entry point uh, for a brand because they're already going after an existing product market fit, right? There's low, low, low risk of uh, you know, price uh, volatility, et cetera, because the user has some other sense of utility with that asset. Past that, I, I think there's a big market for gaming and in-game assets. I personally work in, in, in tickets and travel inventory. I think that's a natural fit for, um, 
for price discovery. But I think in a, in a broader sense, if we look back at the collaboration between Adidas and uh, the Board API Club, what was traditionally a marketing spend where Adidas marketing team wakes up every morning and says, this is our budget. We're going to go out and buy ads and generate some noise. With the Board Ape Yacht Club NFT collaboration, they actually turned their marketing spend into a profit center. So they made a lot of noise with that, um, that issue um, and got a lot of fans. NFT people got excited about it. Adidas people got excited about it but it was actually a profit center for the marketing team. So I, I think this is an interesting place to explore. And I think a number of brands have done this successfully is to conceive of their marketing budget as an actual profit center um, with NFTs. Changing your relationship with your most motivated buyers. Brooke, why are tickets and travel uh, so conducive to this? How are you using it um, in, in your business? So travel inventory, notoriously has very little means of price discovery. So if all of our, if I were to ask you how much you want to pay to fly to Positano this summer, you know, you could name a price, uh, but somebody else could name another price and somebody else could come later on and, and, and name another price. Um, when an airline just offers a price to everybody generally, there's no price discovery because there's no dialogue with the traveler around the willingness to pay. So I think in, in many of these markets, including travel markets, a peer-to-peer -peer marketplaces is ripe for an opportunity to identify the maximum willingness to pay. And, and StubHub does this to, to some degree. Um, and there are some actors who do this to some degree in some of these markets, but it's not at scale. We don't have... Uh, an infrastructure that would allow, for example, a PE shop to speculate on all the flights going to Italy um, from North America this August and then participate in the resale market and, and have the actual travel supplier, have the airline take a percentage of that resale. And I, they, I think that naturally that center of gravity will exist in a peer-to-peer in a -peer marketplace for that inventory. For companies like Brilliant Earth that we cover are using blockchain for diamonds and supply chain. Uh, Walmart and other grocers are looking at blockchain for grocery and chain of custody. What are your thoughts about those opportunities? What do you see happening ahead? I think there will be some, uh, some very useful application of supply chain provenance blockchains for industries that make sense. Um, and I think a bunch of them will fall on the wayside. Um, so I think we're going to have a sort of rough period of adoption here. Um, on just to be very frank, on part of the risk side here is a lot of luxury companies don't actually want this because the definition of a made in Italy tag is, is pretty low bar, right? I can sell a suit with a made in Italy tag merely because some of the finishing was done in Milan, but a lot of the cut and sewn and even fabrication was done overseas. So I'm not really interested in letting the consumer know precisely how much activity was done where and where things are from. Um, so I think that there are gonna be whole markets that, that, that actually don't want 
that transparency. Um, then there will be other markets that do want that, that transparency because of the risk that they encounter. Um, so for example, um, monitoring genetically modified seeds in the EU. If you actually have genetically modified seeds in the EU, there are huge fines associated with that. How those seeds move around, uh, that's sort of a natural blockchain question. So I think over the next five years or so, we'll see some networks and some industries uh, really show some good use cases. But I, I, by definition, I, I don't think that it will be used by all supply chains. Brooke, you uh, mentioned IP rights, intellectual property rights. How do you envision brands maintaining control of their intellectual property in this world of you know, Web3 and peer-to-peer? -peer? Is there a world where consumers can reproduce images of their NFTs? Ethereum does have a lot of flexibility in different kinds of structures that NFTs can hold. So this is, I think, one of the more exciting challenging and frontier, new frontier aspects of brands and media properties in terms of transitioning from a, a Web 2 to a Web 3 context. And the question really is, what would Disney Frozen as, an, as a franchise look like if I owned Elsa? And if I own Elsa and I'm self-identifying as Elsa online, I'm going into different different places, Twitter, Discord, et cetera. Um, and I represent that property in the same way that people today are representing CryptoPunks or uh, Board Ape Yacht Club uh, PFPs. That presents a, a, a business model shift for, for Disney. A business model shift because how much revenue do I get as the owner of Elsa? If I develop some products of Elsa, but then I sell my Elsa NFT, am I still getting revenue for those products? all the way down to questions around, around PR and who these folks are. What happens if you issue some um, NFTs and they're bought by Stormy Daniels, Joe Rogan, and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, right? I think, I think we will definitely see um, properties built and, 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 and a diverse set of buyers who are going out there and um, creating stories that are outside of the control of, of, a, of, a, of an issuer like Disney. So in this sense, I think trying to maintain all of those aspects that, that attain a, a Web2 understanding of, of, of IP and brand management and risk management, PR management, all of that, I think trying to maintain that in a Web3 context is probably a losing battle. And I think one of the central questions here that we're going to see play out over the coming years are, is are natively crypto NFT brands somehow more suited to this new human psyche, right? We're like we're increasingly living online. We're increasingly living in public. Um, and is there, you know, will all of these people just come up with something totally new and they'll just, for them, it will just be natural to have this distributed ownership of this media property. They'll have a different notion of scandal, a different notion of what's fun and attractive or uh, scary or not scary. Um, but I think what we're seeing around these properties like 
crypto punks and, and bored apes is, and, and many others is a, a real ability to monetize attention and consistently reward user engagement. We're seeing folks every day wake up and interact with these brands day after day after day after day after day after day and, and, and be rewarded and be part owners of those. Um, I, I wouldn't bet against that. And I would not be surprised that we wake up in a world five to 10 years from now where the largest media properties, gaming properties, movie properties, et cetera, um, are actually uh, decentrally owned by their NFT holders. Very interesting. Like the analogy is NFT native, digitally native brands. And then the other analogy is how does this transition happen in terms of heritage brands or legacy brands and intersection of legacy with the virtual world? Uh, you touched upon this earlier, Brooke. So why would a brand implement NFTs into their customer acquisition and engagement strategy? Should they do this at all? Um, what are your thoughts there? It's a, it's a great question that very much relates to customer lifetime value as a methodology for valuation. I would advise pretty much every brand to, to try it because we live in an increasingly digital and virtual worlds. Unless your brand is just to, you know, totally be the black sheep and um, you know you have some very special experience that's that's IRL um, I would encourage every every brand to try it and I think there are really two avenues to consider one is the redeemable nft and with the redeemable nft you can't really go wrong so this is the nft that allows you to um, come sit in the first row of our fashion show this is the nft that allows you to um, buy the first of 10 limited edition products, et cetera. Um, I think that's a, that's a fairly safe place to, to play. It's a controllable place. And, and you can certainly identify, you know, a number of, uh, any brand could identify a number of their, you know, top customers who would engage with this, this property. If it's not a, a one-off and if it's not a redeemable NFT, it's an NFT that exists as a media property then you get to this question of how many of them are you issuing and who is the community that will be participating with them? Because again, you want some liquidity, you want some movement, you want user engagement with these things. That is a, that is a more complex question. And I don't think we've seen too many very successful examples of that so far. Um, outside of uh, the Adidas collaboration and, and, and some of the Nike um, and, and Artifact uh, NFTs. But I think it's inevitably a question of scale and sitting down and saying, do we as a brand have 10,000 people who are online every day interacting with us on Instagram, other platforms? And can we interact even closer with those folks um, by getting to a daily liquidity number of around 10 sales a day. I, I, I really think that's the, that's the, the benchmark there. Um, having established that, I think there are a number of creative ways to get there. And, um, you know, as I always say, everybody in crypto has some wins and losses. 
There's no, no one's, no one has made all the perfect trade. Everybody has skinned their shins. And we have a very short memory. What was a scandal today, we'll all forget three or five days from now. Um, so I wouldn't be too afraid. I think you just get into the community and, and, and start playing around. Brooke, um, I ask everybody this in, in our series and talks, what are the three things people should do to get acquainted with NFTs in your view? Talk to someone who owns them and enjoys them and likes them and has had a good experience and engages with them, them daily. Um, there's got to be somebody in your world or one or two people away from you. Find that person and I guarantee you they're happy to talk about it. Um, it we're a pretty engaged and, uh, and, and motivated bunch. So I'd, I'd say certainly find that person and talk. Um, the second one is to look at the marketplaces and, and just see what's out there. Look at the liquidity, look at the recent sales, look at the, the spread between um, in a certain series, the rare traits versus the lower traits. See if there is anything that actually speaks to you. And then number three, I would say go on to Discord or Twitter and see who is it that's actually using these things, who's in a given series. We're in a moment now where NFTs are transitioning from being strictly Discord and NFT, uh, uh, Twitter um, worlds into real life events. Um, so meetups of people who have NFTs are happening all the time. Um, so we're seeing it now go the other way around. Uh, people are setting up parties where the only way you can get in is if you have an NFT or uh, if you, you can come to the party if you're interested, if you're on the Discord. There's just a, a new type of human coordination that we're seeing going on around NFT communities. Find one that speaks to you. Along the lines of becoming uh, further educated in this market, what are some of the more remarkable NFT collections you've come across? What should we go check out? Is it possible to introduce a one-off NFT or would a brand need to focus on providing a collection? So I think one of the more remarkable ones that I've, I've come across is a series called Row Homes by Chris Haitha. He's a Philadelphia-based photographer. And he's taken a series of abandoned row homes in Philadelphia, uh, somewhat abandoned, and he's photoshopped them, done, done some filtering and some, some affecting, uh, you know, made them a, a little sort of cartoon-like, but they nevertheless are, are photo-based images of, of, of homes in, in not great repair. And I think they, they're just beautiful images. They present American Gothic and a sense of Ameri you know, beauty in American de industrial decline in, in, a, in a very beautiful way. And each NFT is a, an individual home. They're, they're numbered with the actual home address. So there's an interesting kind of dynamic between real estate is itself non-fungible, right? It's an asset that is non-fungible. This home is this home. It's not interoperable with some, exchangeable with some other home. And he makes really beautiful art and has built a very, uh, very engaged community around him. And so as a series, I just think there's just, uh, there's a lot of beauty there. And just, again, this dynamic between real estate being non-fungible and, and these NFT being non-fungible. Yeah, this idea but in, in of community is so prevalent, but would love to hear yeah, more yeah. about that. 
Yeah, so there's there have been some artists who have come into the NFT industry and they 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 don't have it in them necessarily to consistently engage with their audience. That's 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 tricky to keep the market going, to keep folks engaged. There are a lot of gaming dynamics going on, right? It's it's not like I'm Jackson Pollock, I make a painting and I'm, and I'm done. Um, if you if an artist issues NFTs, that's really just the first day of a multi-day exercise. Um, you're on Twitter, you're on Discord, you're engaging with, with your fans. Your fans are buying and selling and trading. They're interacting with you and giving you feedback on what your next series could be. Um, it's a really, uh, it is a collaborative ongoing process that generates artwork. Um, but it's, it's, you really have to do, uh, do both things. But what you end up with though, is again, this sort of crypto ideal of human coordination. What does it look like when a lot of people own Bitcoin together? What fellowship is among them? What does it look like when a lot of people own Ethereum together and what fellowship is among them? I could be building on something on Ethereum. You could be building something completely different on the other side of the world. Yet we were coordinated because we're both participating on Ethereum. I could be participating on Solana, but I even have some fellowship with you on Ethereum because we participate, for example, in a regulatory fashion. So as we transition or as we expand our concepts of economic human, co human coordination beyond the LLC, the S-Corp and the C-Corp and federally issued currency. And we expand that to cryptocurrencies and NFTs. There are new forms of human coordination that in my experience are distinctly different. Well, this whole concept of fellowship um, is an interesting statement in relation to community. Also, Brooke, um, we could dive into this for an hour, but what is trust? and trust in this new world um, will be a major important, both regulatory and philosophical topic and ethical topic. Yes, that is the one of the central questions here. I think it's worth um, identifying that the crypto world uses this idea of trustless architecture or permissionless architecture. And to somebody outside the industry, that sounds curious why why do I want something that's trustless? Semantically, what they're trying to say is that the architecture is not burdened with a need for trust. I know that this Bitcoin is a Bitcoin because the Bitcoin network tells me versus with fiat currency or paper currency or anything that was issued with the, the strength of an inter intermediary. I, I know I have this money in my bank account because the Chase mobile app tells me that I do. And the Chase mobile app can tell me that they do because they have funds that they've taken from somewhere else that was ultimately issued by the Fed at some point in time. And so seeing from the crypto or the Bitcoin point of view, I've actually got a lot of trust going on with Chase. Chase has put a lot of trust in the Federal Reserve. And then global markets have put a lot of trust in the United States because they keep buying our bonds and holding things up. So there's a lot of trust going on among all these intermediaries. However, that introduces uh, this, this 
these other new ideas of trust. Okay, if I don't, if I, if I'm unburdened with needing to trust the architecture because yes, I own this NFT, the blockchain says it so. Yes, I own this Bitcoin because the Bitcoin network says it says it so. Distributed settlement finality. The collapse between payment and settlement in one gesture. When I give you hundred dollars, that's it. When I give you a Bitcoin, that's it. When I give you my credit card, that isn't it. I still have to pay my credit card bill later. When I give you a paper check, that isn't it. I still have to pay my paper check later. When you collapse payment and settlement to one gesture, which cryptocurrency introduces with this concept of distributed architecture settlement finality, you enter into a whole new world of what is trust and who am I trusting because you can't rewind that transaction. There's no going back. I can't dispute the charge. And that is the area that Bitcoiners have been playing with for 13 years now. Um, uh, you know, Ethereum for about seven or so. And this is the area that's very hard to regulate because regulation by definition allows the power of the regulator or the admin to go back and reverse a charge or dispute a transaction. And the architecture doesn't allow that. So I think what we'll see is regulators focusing on the fiat on-ramps and off-ramps. But I, I don't think that there's a very good view to what trust and regulatory apparatus looks for, for uh, looks like for um, on-chain transactions. Yeah, we're, we're definitely going to see um, interesting friction in the evolution of this and many different facets. So I'm gonna go rapid fire on a few questions uh, that we get on this topic. Um, would love your thoughts on a few consumer retail examples that we should check out. Second question, decentralized autonomous organizations. What is a DAO? Just what's a DAO 101? Third and final, um, what about wallets? I think the audience should understand what a wallet is. Um, my take is that you know, very few people have wallets and or NFTs. So that's part of the whole ecosystem. Um, great questions. Uh, so to take those in, in order for, for retail uh, at existing brands, I would, I would definitely interact with the um, FTX Coachella NFTs. I think Coachella is, uh, is just beginning their journey as a, as a media property. And I, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see them as, you know, a sort of sprawling digital company some years from now. They have a suite of NFTs that, um, that give lifetime rights to the NFT holders. I think it's a great property to touch. The Nike Artifact series is also a, a very fun series. I think they have a, 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 a well-planned roadmap that they're keeping secret from everybody, but I, I have high hopes from, from that team. In terms of wallets, I, the, the easiest wallets to interact with, in my experience, are actually on Solana. And if I were to advise somebody who has just been beginning their journey, I think the, the, the entry level there is the Phantom wallet, and that's P-H-A-N-T-O-M on Solana is the, is the easiest, safest place to, to, uh, to get started. Um, and Solana has a bunch of uh, NFT marketplaces including FTX, NFT, that's a lot of you know, easy tools to help, help guide users. Uh, so I would say that's a, that's a great place to start. And I, 
I forgot your second question. DAOs, decentralized autonomous organizations. Right. So DAOs are the on-chain attempt to replace the LLC, the C Corp, and the S Corp. And so what that literally means is if we look at the LLC, the C Corp, and the S Corp, these are instruments that are that are driven by essentially word documents. Lawyers have composed sentences and paragraphs in in English or any 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 spoken language, and those are the operating concepts of of those entities, subject to interpretation ultimately by judges in the event of disputes. DAOs replace that coordination with math and computer code. So it's literally going from letters to numbers, introducing the concepts of distributed settlement finality and the idea that all of those rules, rights, and functions that, that exist in uh, LLCs and C-Corps are now existing on chain with smart contracts. And the, the DAO is the distributed autonomous organization that allows individuals and individual wallet holders to periodically interact with the DAO, either through proposals and voting to make decisions about, for example, how treasury is allocated. Brooke, you dived into this, you mentioned that smart contracts, smart contracts are one of the tenets of NFTs too. Could you explain that quickly? Absolutely. So Bitcoin introduces the idea of a distributed ledger that has units of account with balances. You can't go into Bitcoin and, and, and stack too many if-then commands. I can't say, send this Bitcoin to Oliver after Oliver has sent me that NFT, or take these funds and put it in escrow and then after Oliver has done these things over here on the chain, take half the funds and transfer them out of the escrow. Smart contracts, which every other chain has, are an attempt to apply essentially if-then business-oriented commands to the transference of value between parties. So it's the, the execution of business logic as it pertains to assets on chain. Thank you. That was really helpful. Final questions, Brooke. What about BlockSky? You've been working on this, merging the world of travel inventory. Any highlights here telling us a little bit more about this company? So we kicked off in 2017 and we tokenize airline tickets and hotel inventory and we fulfill settlement and expense on them. We are in a, a quasi stealth mode and will be coming out um, later this year, but we are in production uh with uh major buyers and suppliers and our long-term goals are to lower the distribution costs if we look at airlines and hotels these are industries who one year are losing everything because of covid or high gas prices and then the next year everybody wants to get on a plane and go to coachella um so these are industries that we pretty much everybody loves and uses at some point they you know function as a utility in big parts of our lives and our economy. But historically, they don't have very high margins and it's a hit or miss game year over year. I think they can benefit greatly from peer-to-peer markets and price discovery by maximally identifying the willingness to pay and from lowering distribution costs. 
when you buy travel, even when you buy it directly from Delta.com, there are folks in between you and Delta. And I think that uh, blockchain and, and crypto architecture offers the ability for buyers and suppliers to get closer together and, and, and cut down some of those costs. Yeah, rethinking supply and demand is a major tenant of what will happen across many industries. That's really interesting. Brooke, so how do you envision adoption in five to 10 years? Uh, what are your thoughts and forecast about what we'll see five to 10 years from now with respect to NFTs? And if you have any closing remarks as well, thank you. In, in terms of adoption, I'm looking at a, a couple of exciting, exciting things happening. One is the relationship of the creator to the fan. The streaming model has privileged the artists that can reach the maximum audience. And artists who can't reach a maximum audience, they, they get lost. Um, so we've seen just this, uh, you know, spreading gulf between the superstar and, and everybody else. I think going back to this theme of human, human coordination and fellowship between a, a creator and their fans, I think that that will create more diverse art images, sounds, and music as artists are able to get a more activated fan base that's that's participating. For example, to go back to the Real Homes and, and, and Taitha, um, you know, this is an artist who prior to these NFTs was, didn't have the business that he has now. So I'm excited to see that in, 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 um, in the visual arts, but also in, in, uh, in music specifically. The second thing is, I think that this, this generation that's entering middle school now, I think they are about to start engaging with their online digital lives with this clear notion of owning parts of their identity, owning their assets or not owning their assets. I'm excited to see what they do with NFTs and this idea that um, rather than just playing in Minecraft or, or Roblox all day um, and then leaving, that they can actually own some of these assets and, uh, and, and participate with them. Past that, the thing that I'm super excited about is maybe the most boring on the street, but deeds, property titles, stock certificates, um, uh, identity documents. These are all things that are, are sort of naturally digital assets um, that could be NFTs and, uh, and really make life easier for a bunch of folks and, and change marketplaces. If you look at SAP and all of the corporate receivables that are about to get funded in SAP, there's no reason why those couldn't be NFTs and, and people couldn't be bidding on those payables. Um, so uh, I'm a bit of an NFT maximalist in that play in, in that sense. Um, but I think the observation there is, is more around the innovations that Web2 brought to social networks. I think we're about to see Web3 bring that level of innovation to marketplaces. Yeah, Brooke, disruption creates opportunity. And there's many aspects here. What sounds really exciting is inclusivity and innovation and also um, rethinking processes across so many, both you know, magical and exciting and also boring and less sexy processes too. So Brooke, it was great being with you here, really exciting. You, you walked us through a lot of key terminology and also what underpins this whole evolution, our, our philosophies and uh, geopolitical questions, trust, 
Um, so it was really profound and interesting to have this discussion. Thanks for your time, Brooke. It's great to be here. Thank you, Oliver. Thanks for joining us. Stay tuned for the next episode of Cowan Insights.